Well, welcome everybody to the Rick Clark uh, Regenerative Ag broadcast. Um, as you'll notice, uh, Rick's not with us tonight. Uh, I'm Dan DeStutter, and I'm gonna I'm gonna host. And uh, as they say uh, in Indiana, or some Hoosier said it once, uh, our next guest needs no introduction. We've got Dr. Joel Groover from Western Illinois with us tonight. Uh, those of you from the those of you uh, from the Midwest, excuse me, technical difficulty. Okay, those of you from the Midwest or involved with organic agriculture probably know Joel. Uh, had the good fortune to meet him uh, probably about eight years ago, and uh, even greater privilege the last several years to. Uh, be a remote guest lecture for one of Joel's classes every spring. And um, from that, I can tell you that the, the level of discussion going on in that classroom and the questions those kids ask uh, show that Joel has really got them thinking and going and we're lucky to have him with us tonight. So welcome, Joel. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. Well, um, in keeping with Rick's tradition, uh, we'll start it off tonight by saying, you know, what's on your mind, Joel? What, what do you want to talk about tonight? What, what's uh, a topic, uh, it can be anything that, that you really want to uh, discuss tonight? Well, I guess one just quick thing that's on my mind. I'm, I'm almost done with my fall semester. I have one more class tomorrow and I'm feeling kind of worn out kind of ground down. And I guess I, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is ho hopefully you'll uh, have uh, compassion if I just start falling asleep in the middle of this, but ho hopefully we all are thinking about sustainability beyond just how we take care of our land resources. We need to take care of ourselves. And um, so, sometimes I, I question whether I, whether I prioritize that enough. The sustainability aspect of just having a balanced life and getting enough sleep and having recreation and things like that. Um, sometimes I, I struggle to find that, but I'm very happy to be here. Um, and ho hopefully, you know, I can learn from, you know, you were saying, Dan, you went to a basketball game last night. That sounds to me like you know how to find some balance, but you're not just farming. You're also, you know, prioritizing going to, See games. You know, interestingly enough, I've never been accused of not knowing how to have fun, Joel. So um, we're good there, I think. And uh, your point is well taken. I think I saw it in a doctor's office once, a little sign that says, you can take time for yourself now or you can pay me for my time later. And yeah. that's very true. You, you've got to have that balance. So uh, uh, especially going into the holidays, uh, it's time to focus our energies and, and, and look for that balance and uh, not get uh, too stressed out. So uh, point well taken. Well, I know one of the things that we talked about the other day that, that uh, we both kind of have a keen interest in is the, the notion of within this organic rotation coming up with a year where we can just really focus on producing biomass and diversity and doing great things for the soil. And I know you've kind of initiated some work along those lines. Could you tell us a little bit about what you've done, what you've seen so far, and, and, and how you are looking to, to work on that uh, experimentally in the future? That's a great question. 
So basically until very recently, my high biomass cover crop seasons without a cash crop were all basically accidental or they were forced upon me by some disaster. You know, there was a flooding event or in one case we had a, a no-till soybean experiment where it just got overrun with weeds and I decided to till everything in. Um, but what I'm really thinking a lot about now is how to do it much more consciously, how to plan a soil building year or a regenerative year. And, you know, I think there are some traditional organic rotations that try to do this, you know, maybe every seven years or something like that. Um, but most of us don't. Most of us feel we have to have a cash crop every year. And, you know, when you're paying several hundred dollars rent, you, you feel like you've got to have some revenue coming in. But I think, you know, when you crunch the numbers and you have uh, something I've always been impressed about, about you, Dan, you, you have a financial sense that, you know, you're able to prioritize things well, I think. Um, I, I don't maybe have as much financial background, but I've been running some enterprise budgets recently. And, you know, that allows me to just get um, essentially all of the fixed and variable costs taken care of. And they give you some default numbers, but you can stick in your own numbers and look at things. And it's pretty clear that growing low yields, you just have low margins. And as soon as you start to have higher yields, you, without going out of control with inputs, you start to see more profitability per unit of production. And when you have a soil building year that allows you to have a really productive, low risk, low input type of season following that fallow or regenerative year, I, I think the, the numbers just really make sense. Um, you just, you can have, if you just, you know, I, I think I sent you a spreadsheet where, you know, if you compare just spending, you know, maybe, you know, if you look at my cash rent and my cost of cover crop seed and, you know, the management, but that fallow year might cost me $400, maybe a little more than $400. But the amount of revenue that I can get from a, 220 plus bushel corn crop at current organic prices is substantially more than if I had a low yielding soybean crop followed by a low yielding um, corn crop. And when I say low, I'm, you know, I'm talking um, what might be considered kind of organic county averages, 30, 40 bushel beans, and maybe 150 bushel corn or a little less. Um, with, with the numbers that I've looked at, I mean, the, the amount of revenue and then also obviously the, the profit, you know, is what matters the most, is just greater when you really take care of that soil for one year and then have a high yielding crop next year. And I don't, I don't think we need to have a fallow year every other season. I mean, that, that would be a pretty extreme example. And some, you know, some people have, have looked at that kind of system. I, I think we can look at it maybe every four or five years in a rotation, or maybe just strategically when you have a specific need. 
you know, when, when you have a field that needs some, you know, some renovation, you, you've got perennial weeds out of control, you've got really poor structure. Um, the, the value of cover crops is just so much greater when you can let them grow all season long Absolutely. compared to planting late and killing early, which is what, you know, we often well, do with our cover crops. A couple things there. One, we are on the regenerative broadcast. So whatever we're doing, we need to make sure that our cells are improving over time. We know that having a year like this where we inject a lot of diversity and let things go to full biomass and, and build that system is a great thing from the standpoint of being regenerative. Um, the other point I'd make is that we get so stuck as farmers traditionally in looking at crop budgets one year at a time. And we really need to look at the whole. We're not interested in just one year here. We need to look at what happens over the whole scope of things. And when you do that, these things can start to make a lot of sense. And just throwing out rough numbers, um, you know, a, a good organic crop in our area, let's say it's um, 200 bushel. If we can create an environment where we can raise 200 bushel organic corn um, with little to no inputs, you know, that's anywhere from $2,000 to $2,400 gross right now in today's market. And, you know, we've got a few hundred dollars worth of expenses maybe against that, if, again, if we're not using inputs. So um, if you then follow that, and, and I'm thinking of Gary Zimmer, I was at a field day of his, and what he's doing in Wisconsin is they don't get their corn harvested until late. They don't have a lot of options. So they're going in with rye because they're typically planting it in November after they get their corn out. And then they're coming in overseeding that with, with clover, red clover, with a few others mixed in. And then they harvest a bit of a rye crop. It's not a lot. It's not a high yielding rye crop, but they get something, 30, maybe 40 bushels. And they can sell that as feed or as cover crop seed. You get a little income, but then you got your understory coming up. You've got a big window now to come in and, and bring in some warm season grasses and, and legumes and, and prepare that crop, set the stage for a good corn crop the following year. And uh, when you do the numbers on that and you average out over a year, I mean, it's, it's possible that you could net eight to $900 an acre pretty easy with that system and, and only be harvesting a, I suppose you, you get a cash crop in the off year, but it's, it's not a lot. Um, so I do think that the point is we need to look at these over the whole cycle and factor in what the cost, um, the, the benefit is of actually what we're doing to build that soil, to grow nitrogen, do all these things that we need, break weed cycles to, to make. Uh, I think Klaus Martin says it well. He talks about, you know, setting the stage so the next cash crop is going to be the one that has the advantage. And we can do that if we've got a full year to run at it. It's hard to do in the context of a corn bean cycle where, again, you're fighting getting crops out and then your cover crop gets planted late and this sets the whole thing. This gives you a reset year to get ahead of the curve. And I think, you know, another key part of this is if you can make your productivity more consistent, you can reduce the risk such that your projections actually are likely to come true. Your, your whole system is so much more manageable. But when you are swinging for the fences, but then you have these bust years because you're, you just have an unstable system. Um, 
that that's when you end up with financial chaos. And we we need to think about, you know, even if the total revenue coming in, you know, is is less if if it is more stable. If we have a system yeah. that's more reliable, that that works for us well. And I think well, that the clover frost seeded into rye, that is a tried and true system. And it, it can't produce all the benefits that a diverse cover crop cocktail could produce com, you know, coming after a small grain. But that clover is planted during a time when it's low risk to get, you know, you're gonna have the frost cracking, the seed's gonna get in the ground and, you know, you're not gonna have potentially a month in the middle of the summer when it's too dry for any of your seeds to get started. So, um, I mean, every once in a while you hear about frost seeding not working, but it, it is a very reliable system. And I think there are ways to have some diversity. I mean, you don't have to just have red clover. That's, sure. you know, that's standard, but um, with cereal rye being a little taller, I think there's less risk in adding in something like sweet clover, which is right. a little, which can get a little tall. We had at one time get above our oats and we had to swap. It, it was a mess. But um, I'm, I have some rye planted um, that I got planted this fall. And I'm feeling really good that I won't have as much of a scramble. I still will plant some oats in the spring. But our you know, getting oats planted in March is always a scramble. And I, I'm just really happy that half of my small grain acres are planted. And then I'm happy that I can plant probably a mix of medium red and sweet clover. And then I might actually throw in a grass. I mean, something like orchard grass or perennial ryegrass works well with frost seeding. Um, even brassicas can be thrown in there. And, you know, rye is very competitive. So I, I'm not worried about losing a little bit of yield um, from that understory. I, I think the rye is going to dominate because I got it planted into warm soil. It got off to a good start. And, um, you know, that's, that's going to give me, you know, se several different species, including legumes, a grass and a brassica maybe. Um, that's going to give me some pretty good diversity, low risk, without having to count on planting after I've, harvested the small grain. And I, I want to also have some warm season mixes, but Absolutely. I don't want to do that on all my acres because sometimes in the middle of the summer. Oh, we, we experienced just... it this year. We planted our warm seasons and they sat there for 30 days almost before, because we had no rain in June. And uh, this gives you some, some um, you know, you get a chance to go out there early and establish it. If you have good moisture later, you can come in with your warm seasons and spice it up. But by the same token, if your frost seeding fails, or if that doesn't work out, you still have the wherewithal coming in after that rye harvest and do some good things. But uh, hopefully you got enough chances here. You got several of them that are gonna work out. What, our biggest issue with, uh, with cereal rye in this part of the world, as far as harvesting it is, A, it tends to wanna lodge, and B, um, we tend to struggle with germ rates in the, in the Eastern Midwest somewhat. And do you think that having these frost seeded things in with it would help prop it up and maybe keep it standing better or, or no impact or what have you seen there? Well, I, I would guess that it might slow down the growth a little bit um, so that it doesn't get at, you know, the rye tends to fall down when it is overfed. 
when you have too much nitrogen availability. And then obviously certain, you know, weather conditions, you know, can, uh, you know, can uh, overwhelm anything that tall. But um, one thing I'm pretty excited about, and I, I've only, I've only done this on a small basis is, is hybrid rye. Hybrid rye is just, it, it stands really well. It's really resistant to ergot. So it has higher quality grain. It has much higher yield potential. I mean, the Practical Farmers of Iowa has done trials with, with hybrid rye where they, they've seen yields well over 150 bushels per acre. So that, just, that's phenomenal. Just, yeah, that, and we're excited. We've got our first uh, hybrid rye out this year and very excited to see how it goes. One thing I would mention is that when you go down that road though, you limit yourself to the feed market. You cannot resell that for seed. So that, if you've got true. regular sale rye with the amount of cover crops being seeded, there's a good chance you can clean that and find a local market to sell as cover crop seed. When you go to the hybrid rye, that's off the table uh, because it's patented and you can't save seed. So just want to make sure everybody's aware of that. But yeah, I'm very excited to see what the hybrid rye will do for us this year for those reasons. I, I think rye is just such a... Um, a great small grain. You know, we need more small grains in our rotations. Absolutely. And we need to find ways that we can, you know, we can plant as late as November and still have something that, you know, really is going to give us a, a decent crop. And rye is the best for planting late. You know, you're not, you're going to lose some yield with planting that late. But um, as you were saying earlier, rye, Rye or small grains are in that rotation to basically give give you the the diversity in your rotation, not not to maximize revenue that season. And no, the goal of this year is not to maximize revenue. It's to it's to grow soil, to improve soil, and if we can augur a little bit of income, it helps pay some of the rent or, or make a land payment. That's fantastic. But uh, you know, I, I do think that uh, this is something I would challenge everybody to look at in their own context to see, um, you know, how this kind of program might fit into your world. And having said that, you know, one of the questions I had prepared for you is, Joel, I know you're an educator, but you also have some practical experience because you run the organic farm at Western Illinois. So you got some hands on, but if we take away your tenure and say, you're not a teacher anymore, you're a full-time farmer and you've got rent payments and or land payments and a family to feed, uh, tell us, you know, in your part of the Midwest, what kind of a rotation would you start out with? What what would you look at? What what are you, what are the things that you've seen work best in our part of the world here? Well, the so we got the classic rotation, which is um, you have wheat or a small another small grain and corn and soybeans, and normally the soybeans would follow the corn and the small grain would precede the corn. You would have clover or some, some legume following the small grain. And so, you know, it'd be like wheat, red clover, corn, and then soybean. That'd be your three-year rotation. And I think that there's a lot, a lot of history behind that rotation. But I think that I would probably not use that rotation if I was, particularly if I, um, was having problems with weeds. If I was feeling like I wanted something that was more stable, I would probably actually 
have the soybeans follow the red clover and then the corn follow the soybeans. Now, I'm still kind of in the early stages of figuring out how to make that work. I have red clover that followed oats that I have now drilled rye into. And I plan in that, that situation, I'm planning to till in the rye and the clover, maybe, maybe at knee high or some, something like that. Um, and what I'm trying to do is not have an excessive amount of nitrogen available for the soybeans, but rather make that nitrogen from the clover hang on longer so that I, you know, I think we, we know that clover or alfalfa has multiple years of nitrogen release. But I think if we, if we combine the clover with rye, we, we can really tie up the nitrogen that first season and have it more available the second season. That, that's what so, I'm hoping for. So, so is the key of that to, to make sure that rye starts to lignify so you raise your carbon-nitrogen ratio there to get it to, to stick around a little longer? Is that, is that enter into your decision on when to yeah, term? That, that's the basic idea. You need to have the rye grow to enough maturity that it, it's got a higher CN ratio. It, it will really immobilize nitrogen that's being released from the from the clover, and I, you know I think one of the one of the things I think about as somebody who historically has done a lot of research on soil organic matter. I don't I don't do kind of the mechanistic research that I used to do. Now I do really applied. You know how do you manage cropping systems research? But um, I used to look at how does organic matter actually accumulate at the very intimate level in the soil. Where's the organic matter within soil structure? What stabilizes it? And just growing a lot of high carbon material doesn't build organic matter the way we used to think it did, mm -hmm. including legume biomass with high carbon material is how we grow microbes and build long-term stable organic matter. And so I, that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm growing this rye with my red clover. And I just, I feel like I'll, I'll have something that will be um, manageable with tillage next spring. But I also will have a system where I, I have, you know, I have no-till soybeans that will be following a similar situation, but I, I tilled the clover in the fall. And then I planted the rye in yeah. mid-September and the rye got off to a great start because it, you know, it is benefiting from having a prepared seed bed from the nitrogen available from the determinated clover. And um, I also, that, that rye that followed the terminated clover, I've, I also seeded crimson clover with the rye. And so what, once again, I'm trying to combine legume and grass so mm -hmm. that um, I, I really, I don't want the, that crimson clover to be supplying much nitrogen to the next soybean crop, but I want to see the following year be a good corn crop. And so thinking about how to build a no-till soybean system so that it is preceded in a way that really sets it up to succeed, but also is followed in a way that really benefits. That's something I'm 
spending a lot of time thinking about it. I, I think the um, we we harvested some corn this year that followed no-till beans in 2021. And we could see very clearly where we had legumes with the cereal rye, the corn did better this year. I know I know Dave Brandt has uh, rec start has gone to recommending, you know, when people are getting their rye mixes in the fall ahead of soybeans to include some hairy vetch for that reason. They're seeing benefits. I think we're talking about the same thing here, but I want to back up for a second. You know, as you know, Joe, when we met, I was a art no-tiller and uh, came into organic believing that we could we could make no-till work. And, and I do think that there are certain contexts and situations where we can. We're going to continue to work on that. But also having recognized that there are times when we have to do some tillage. And for me, that was a hard decision to make. And in the spirit of being regenerative, um, spent a little time last winter knowing I had to do some tillage. Okay, if I want to be regenerative, what do I need to do to offset that, to put it back? Do we need this regen year? And when I started looking in the literature, first of all, all the, all the, all the studies that have been done about tillage that, that tell us that tillage is negative to soil carbon are done in bare dirt systems. And when you start looking at just the ones where they're using high biomass, green cover crop, green manuring type things, they seem to show that we can increase soil carbon faster with a, a, at least a light incorporation of that biomass, getting mixed into the soil a little bit and improve soil aggregation better than if we just left it on the surface. So you mentioned you've been studying this carbon thing and this is something, you know, forget about carbon credits and what people want to pay us. I want to build carbon on my own farm because that's what makes farming profitable. More carbon in the soil is more profit in the bank. So talk to me about what your experience has been and, and, and the role that tillage can play potentially in improving our ability to sequester, sequester carbon and improve soil aggregation. Yeah, th those are great questions that I, you know, I have wrestled with this issue as well you know you it, it's so easy to be just very focused on principles like no-till or minimal disturbance but I we think the word is dogma getting dogmatic we, we can't yeah. afford to be dogmatic we have to i guess the way i think about it is we have to have a balance between principles and practices and when the principles interfere with us having effective practices we, we need to rethink just wh why we're so fixated on that principle. And not that the principle is wrong, but that we've lost the balance between principles and practices sometimes. And so um, we, we use a rotivator at the research farm and it, you know, it's a very good tool for tilling very shallow but getting full termination of vegetation but it's very slow. We use a 10 foot rotivator and we're typically going four miles an hour. And so it takes a long time to cover much ground. Um, there are high speed disks um, that I think are, are being used by, you know, folks in Indiana, like Andy Ambriol, and, mm -hmm. um, folks out in Nebraska are really stirring in high biomass in the spring such that they, they get a very, you know, they're doing it when the biomass is still relatively green and digestible, and they're getting a rapid 
building of you know microbial activity and soil tilth. So you know if if you're building soil tilth, I, I think we can just say that's the simplest way to identify whether you're building soil organic matter. Soil tilth, you're building structure that encapsulates organic matter. If our structure is getting degraded, it's pretty hard to make the claim that you're building soil organic matter. But if your structure is improving, that, that's a good indicator, at least in the short term, that you are capturing organic matter in that structure. And um, I, I think, yeah, there's lots of evidence that microbes are what turn into organic matter. And yeah. we can grow microbes by feeding them good, you know, a good balanced diet and some, you know, a mix of grass and legumes or some brassicas where it's highly digestible. The kind of mix that you'd want to feed a cow is what feeds the soil microbes well. And so we're not just trying to feed lots of corn stalks. We want to have maybe some corn stalks combined with the green stuff to get so, to get that you know microbial activity going you mentioned measuring soil tilt and that's a slippery slope how do we measure that i mean conventional soil tests don't really tell us much about that um you know one of the simplest things i've found that helps uh, with that is um just a simple infiltration test about pounding and measure how long it takes if the soil's moving water through and absorbing you probably got tilt but are there other tests that you use? I mean, if, if we're wanting to, you know, for me, this is kind of new territory. And I just want to make sure as we go along that it's really happening like the studies say it should. And, and what are the ways that you use to monitor that to say, yes, this is this is working. We're making our soil better. We're not tearing it down. How do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you you can be quantitative. I mean, in I, I taught a lab this morning where we were doing an aggregate stability test. And we, the, the students had brought in soil from their farms and they were comparing crop field versus fence row. And every and single how you pair. Do that? How are you doing that? How are you doing the test? We, the way we did the test is we, we sieved out a particular size fraction of soil. So we just dumped some soil on a stack of sieves and we were using the two to four millimeter fraction of soil. And then we used a, we simply used a sink strainer just you know, a little wire mesh sink strainer on top of a cup. And we um, basically let 10 grams of dry soil sit in the bottom of the sink strainer underwater for one minute. And then we went up and down 10 tubs. So that, that's one way. And so then, you know, then we were able to dry things out and quantify how much stable soil. But I guess I want to rewind. I think soil tilth is actually something that doesn't require fancy measurements. You see it every time it rains. You basically, you just have to go out and look and you will see whether your soil is having rapid infiltration or whether you have ponding. You see whether a crust is forming or, or not. You know, if you have good tilth, then you, know, you might develop a very light crust, but you will continue to have the next rain events infiltrating the soil. If you have poor tilth, you develop a strong crust and you start to have very poor infiltration. So that, to me, that's qualitative, but that observation is maybe have more you been able to, than anything have else. Have you been able to tie that to organic matter tests done in a lab to see the organic, you're putting more carbon in the soil? Have you been able to 
verify that with outside testing then to corroborate what you're seeing out in the field? Well, I, I think, I, I don't know if I could say that I have the data that, that shows that, but I have seen that kind of data. And I think what work, for example, at the Rodale Institute, they have their farming systems trial, their long-term trial comparing two organic systems versus the, the Pennsylvania, the Penn State BMPs. And one of the organic systems is manure-based, but the other is just legume-based. So they don't add any, any manure, but they, they grow hairy vetch and um, I think some other legumes. And that, that system has less carbon coming in, but it is retaining more carbon. So there's a more efficient conversion into stable organic matter. And I, I haven't seen the latest numbers on this, so I, I, I should look again and see. Now we're 40 years in. What I'm mm -hmm. thinking of is data from maybe 30 years into the experiment. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, yeah there's, <coughs> there's data that shows that the quality of residues has a big impact on the efficiency with which those residues turn into microbes and the microbes turn into soil organic matter. And just having what I call the, the feast and famine dead residue diet, where you have a whole bunch of corn stalks or, or soybean you know, residues that come in at one time and they, you know, you've, you've basically left the material that's dead and not so highly digestible. The, the microbes, they binge on, on that residue and they don't turn very much of it into stable organic matter. Whereas yeah, and when you have the legume cover crop with it, you get more stabilization. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've read where over half the soil organic matter that we measure typically is composed of dead microbial carcasses. Is that? Yeah, that, yeah. there's probably... So, that's probably so anytime, not right. It may be more than that. Anytime we fire up that microbial engine, uh, we're creating stabilized organic matter potentially. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I think we need to be careful. Um, I, I gave a presentation now more than a decade ago called, Do We Want Cast Iron Carbon? And it was about, are we just trying to lock up the carbon in the soil? Or do we need to look at the fact that the dynamic carbon is the carbon that's really feeding the organisms, that's both gluing and ungluing soil structure. And we, we don't need our aggregates to never open up. We need our- yeah, We need a functional carbon cycle. We need a carbon cycle, absolutely. And um, basically it, you can go all the way back. There was a classic article by William Albrecht, the, this professor that, you know, but many in the organic community, you know, are aware of Acres USA publishes sure. Albrecht ideas. And um, Albrecht was a, a great agronomist back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And he wrote an article about soil organic matter, where he said, our goal is not to hoard organic matter like a miner hoarding gold. Our goal is to have dynamic organic matter that's feeding the soil. And, you know, obviously today, mo most farmers, conventional farmers that are using 
fertilizer, they're, they're not as concerned about nutrients being released from the organic matter. But in an organic system, we, we need nutrient you know, release when the crops need it. And you know, we need organic matter to decompose. We're not just trying to lock it up. We need organic matter cycling. And obviously we need enough of it to accumulate so that we have a reserve. But we, you know, I, another example I use when I'm teaching is kind of the, the hydroelectric dam. We, we need to have enough water behind the dam, but we also need to have water going through the dam. Well, so another, Klaus Martin, I think, says this pretty well. He, he says that what good does it do you to have a million dollars in your savings account if you never take a withdrawal and you starve to death? That mm -hmm. you know yeah. you should be willing to use the interest to eat on, and yep. that's kind of the same thing here. Well, that's that's good stuff, and it, it's been a hard thing for me to get my mind around coming from thirty years of no-till thinking to to trying to look at you know how to manage these high biomass systems, and and it's something Rick and I debate frequently is uh, you know um, minimize disturbance versus maximizing biomass, and and we've seen where that's a choice we have to make sometimes. If we, if we don't do a little bit of disturbance, then we may not get near the biomass production that we can get if we do just a little. And sometimes it's just like, remember back in the early no-till days, we had the fluff and plant drills, like a, a tie drill that had colders in front. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these vertical tillage tools are, are really very similar to that now. And, and we use that to seed and we see a whole different response sometimes than if we take a John Deere drill and just slice it in. And there's times when one works and times when the other works better. And, and we're, we're having to relearn which tool and which situation a lot of the times. Um, that's all good stuff. Uh, you know, you, you, we touched on this a little bit, but you talked about your rotation and you're talking about, you know, there's been a lot of work done with no-till organic beans. And we know that there's times we can make that work. We also know there's times when it's not going to work very well. So within the context of that rotation, I think you kind of already talked about this, but I just want to reiterate this. Where, where would you place the beans? We, we typically think of corn and then beans and then wheat. But that may not necessarily <laughs> yeah. be the best setup for organic no-till soybeans. Talk. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't like that system, at least in our location, because um, I just think it's, it's high risk to establish an adequate stand of rye following corn. And so I'd rather have a lower risk system. And so I, I, follow, I follow a small grain with yeah. the rye, but I normally have a legume cover crop or a mix in between the small grain harvest and then preparing a seed bed for right. planting a really good stand of rye. And, um, and I, I want to get that rye planted early. I want it to tiller. I want it to decide basically how many stems it should produce. I, I'm not trying to put out three, four bushels of seed. Right. I, I, I would like to have, um, you know, about a bushel and a half maybe, but I, I really don't think about volume like that. I, I really think about population. So my right. goal is to have, about 1.5 million seeds dropped. And if you plant really early, like early September, I think a million is enough. But pl planted in mid to late September, million and a half, 
seeds. And um, by, by the next spring, I expect to have like 60 or more robust stems per square foot. That's something yeah. that I go out and I just stick in a square and I count the number of stems. And I don't want skinny, wimpy stems. I want robust stems that will crimp well. And um, then, you know, what I've been working on recently is how to have legumes grow with the rye. Because if you're, if you're going to grow that rye all the way till, you know, full bloom, or, or I, I often wait until a few weeks after a thesis to roll is my recent experience. Um, that's plenty of time to grow lots of other things all the way to full bloom. And so legumes like crimson clover or peas, you can grow all the way to viable seed. And so that, the question I have there and the, the logic behind corn following the, the small grain lagoon crop is the nitrogen issue. Have you successfully using this sequence been able to generate and, and have enough nitrogen left after that bean crop to produce the corn crop? Or does that put you in a situation where if you want to grow corn there, you got to bring some manure in to make that happen? Well, I think, you know, one of the, one of the key things that I'm always looking at is where, where do you get the return on investment in whether it be money or an activity? So like with tillage, where do you get the return on your tillage? Where do you get a big response to that? And um, with corn, that's where I see the biggest response to tillage. That's also where I see the biggest response to some, some added, some, you know, some uh, off farm source of, you know, of fertility. But I don't think you need the full program that many people are using. I mean, we, we grew, we grew corn this year following no-till beans, where some of it was just straight rye and some of it was rye with various legumes. And we only put on um, the equivalent of about 75 pounds of N of nitrogen from swine manure. And what we saw was that the, the yield was more variable than I would like to see. So we, we didn't have enough nitrogen to you know, get that uniform yield the way, you know, putting on lots of nitrogen gives you a more uniform yield. But we did see there were lots of places in the field that were yielding over 170 bushels of corn. And we, we didn't see that where we were following straight rye. Where we had the rye plus legume, we had some variability because we weren't putting on quite enough nitrogen to, to max things out. But we, we had lots of areas in the field that were 170, 180, 190 bushel corn. And we, we had a very dry year, which I think, um, you know, that, that probably limited the release of nitrogen from the soil organic matter, but we also started out very wet. And that's, that's the toughest combination where your roots are compromised by early wetness and then you, then you're dry. Um, but, um, overall I was, I was really pleased with how well the corn did on essentially a half nitrogen program where we had the rye plus a legume. The, the no-till beans grew well. You know, we, ha we had 60, 60 to 65 bushel no-till beans where we had rye plus crimson clover. That was the best combination, rye plus crimson clover. And then that's also where we grew some, some beautiful corn. 
in the following year. In, yeah, the following so, year, but just not completely uniform. We we also put on a nitrogen fixing microbial product called Utricia. And tomorrow I'm I'm hoping I can look at we, we put that on with a drone in specific patches in the field. Right. Right now, I can't really tell whether the variability in yield is related to where we put on the nutrition. But I think I think products like Utricia or Invita, some some of these nitrogen fixing microbes for non-legumes really have a real opportunity where we, you know, where we're running a lean nitrogen program. That that extra we, nitrogen from the microbes, I think, can help. We we use some as well, and we hope to get our analysis done next week to see we left a lot of strips with and without and see what it did for us. Uh, we're getting some questions rolling in, so I want to get to them in a second here. But um, I have to ask one more question here. Um, then my experience as an early organic farmer and, and a lot of friends has been our big nemesis. That's foxtail. And um, what are your thoughts on foxtail prevention? And I guess, you know, one of the things when I read the old literature and they talk about, well, if this weed, if this plant's trying to grow, it probably means this or that, um, you know, soluble calcium seems to be part of the matrix here that decides whether these foxtail seeds germinate or not germinate. Uh, I guess, so I would cast the question is, in your experience, do you agree with that or not? And if, if, if not, what are the other factors we can do to minimize that? And if, if so, what's the best way to get soluble calcium out there? And I'm not talking about soil calcium levels. I mean, Rick and I both have very high levels of soil calcium and that's not the issue. It's, it's, it's that biosignaling occurring that, that tells this seed to germinate or not. And, and that's, yeah. I think, is more on the side. But so talk to us about foxtail and, and your approach to the best ways to manage it and uh, control it, hopefully, again, without using you know, proactive means rather than reactive means as much as possible. Yeah. Well, so um, I... I have put out some gypsum over the years, and I haven't seen an impact on weed germination. Gypsum is a good source of soluble calcium. And so um, I, I'm not disputing that soluble calcium has an effect, but I don't think it's a, a really strong, okay. really easily observable effect. Other, otherwise, I, I think it just would be much more well-known within the farm community that this is how you address foxtail because foxtail is, you know, is a, a, a challenging weed for many organic farmers. Um, now, our experience is that we used to have lots of foxtail on the WIU Organic Research Farm, and we have made huge progress in controlling foxtail through several, th several different approaches. Um, I think that you know in our conventional till systems, which are you know they are reduced carefully, always if if at all possible at least once pre-emerge and then often once or twice post-emerge, and foxtail is just very susceptible to blind cultivation. So 
Blind cultivation is with a rotary hoe or a tine weeder or other types of harrows. When the foxtail is between germination and emergence, it is just really easily terminated. That's the weak link in not just foxtail, many weeds are in that uh, very I, weak I'm, I'm with. I, I, I'm, I'm with you and, and we can talk about the blind cultivation because I know that's an area you've done some work in and, and I have no doubt that's a significant <laughs> part of the strategy. But what I'm really interested in in the no-till is, is, is no in preventing it. You know, how do, how, how do we sequence the plants, covers and, and whatnot to where it just doesn't need, feel the need to grow maybe? Okay. Is that well, possible? Well, yeah. And I guess just, I, I don't want to, go too deep into blind cultivation, but I guess I would say that I see blind cultivation as not just a strategy for directly terminating white root weeds. It's also a strategy for preventing germination because you're leaving the soil surface in a very loose, dry condition where germination of many annual weeds is, is very, very limited, very inhibited. Now, the that loose well-aerated environment, I think, is actually more universally inhibitive of foxtail and other annual weeds than high calcium. High calcium may contribute to that really loose, well-aerated surface zone, but um, I, I think having very good tilth at the soil, so, soil surface is just key to not having a big... Um, flush of foxtail. And that doesn't have to involve blind cultivation. Uh, you can build tilth, you know, with biomass as well. But what, what we normally see is the foxtail comes when we have a really pounding rain and the soil structure gets, you know, gets collapsed. And what, you know, one thing that we are looking at in addition to adding legumes to rye in our no-till systems, well, in addition to adding legumes that we expect to overwinter, we're also adding legumes and brassicas that we don't expect to overwinter. Things that we expect to just grow rapidly in the fall and then winter kill. And I think that contributes to having a porous soil surface that is less favorable for foxtail to germinate. So something like radish, for example. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. Would be, that would be a classic um rapidly growing fall cover crop that will not make it through the winter in, in a normal winter um i think flax is another one there are various things that will grow you know grow enough in the fall that they will have you know a an effect that even though they're not alive in the spring i think they're going to have an effect on the physical properties but also the biological Bio. activity yeah. the next spring right. okay so I'm gonna to go to the first question here. Um, this is from Mark Volmar. Uh, I have not had success growing no-till soybeans because I don't get the biomass. I have had better success growing no-till corn and vetch after grain. We've been organic for 30 years and just started trying no-till three years ago. We have Canadian thistle, so we chiseled after the grain and then plant multi-species cover with vetch. I, I guess there's not really a question there but uh, you care to comment on that statement? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of key ideas there. One is if you 
harvest a small grain and you have perennial weeds, the middle of the summer is when you get the most bang for the tillage buck. You know, you get more effective termination of perennial and annual weeds when you do the tillage in the middle of the summer. And uh, so, yeah, with, with Canada thistle and bindweed and a variety of other perennials that we, we don't have serious problems, but we have more problems with perennial weeds now that we grow about half of our beans no-till. And so, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I'm looking for is a way that we can um, use the frost-seeded clover where we don't have the perennial weeds and then use tillage in the middle of the summer followed by a thick diverse cover crop mix if we if we had that that uh, perennial weed problem uh, i know in, in regard to the canadian thistle i've heard it said that the, i think the german wisdom was if you mow it in may it's going to stay if you mow it in june it'll be back soon if you mow it in july say goodbye that the point is that it's possible to control at least thistles potentially with timely mowing. And I yeah. assume that that's going to vary depending on your latitude and, and what you're really shooting for is kind of that bud early flower stage. If you can get in, if you don't want to do tillage and you've got thistles, you may be able to mow at that point and then seed something right away. And, you know, and like I said, coming out of small grain harvest, that's probably about that time, hopefully where you can, get a timely mowing and then get something else growing right away and hopefully work on it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, with, with any weed, I think, you know, what you want to do is try and think like a weed is what my colleague, the weed scientist at WIU says. So he has the students write a essay where they're thinking like a weed with, with perennial weeds, there is a time when they have the most depletion of root reserves because they have been sending it up into the top of the plant. And, uh, my understanding for Canada thistle is it's in that early bud, you know, bud to early bloom stage. That's when there's the least stored in the roots. And so if you either till or mow at that time, that's when you have depleted the root system the most. And with a perennial root system, it'll probably take multiple depletions. But, um, you know, we're, we're trying to use a you know, a many little hammer approach often in organics. We don't have one tool, but we can put together multiple strategies. So deplete the root reserves and then come in with, you know, a, a very competitive cover crop mix. Um, I, I think that can, you know, that can help the root reserves not re, you know, re-energize. Um, regarding no-till corn following vetch, um, I guess, my experience is that I have been very leery of using vetch, mainly because I, I don't want to have vetch in my soil seed bank growing in my small grains. Um, and I think there are some organic farmers that just, you know, have learned to work with vetch. But so, so far, I've been, I've been very cautious using vetch, and I use winter peas more than vetch. And... Um, I guess my, my experience is you get the rye, the high biomass rye, you know, that's needed for no-till beans by consciously creating a rotation where you can plant the rye early 
and plant it into a good, you know, a seed bed. Um, so if he's planting it late or he's planting it following corn, that's probably why he's not getting the biomass. Um, you know, with with the vetch ahead of no-till corn, um, you know, I'm glad to hear that he's had some success. My, my experience is that we just, we get the most response to tillage by the corn crop. And so I'm, I'm not as interested in figuring out how to do no-till corn as I am in figuring out how to do no-till beans really well, you know, can reliably in a way that I set it up well and I benefit from it with the following crop. So there's no question corn in our experience is kind of a prima donna. It's really sensitive to having green <laughs> things around it from emergence through at least V5. And, and that makes it difficult. Having said that, you know, the, the folks at, at Rodale have, have been pretty successful at a, a, a rye vetch cover crop rolling it and no tilling into that. And, and uh, we've seen that work. Um, I would still call it um, a more volatile practice, perhaps, in terms of uh, some years it's going to work really well, some years not so well. And it, it, your caveat is well taken that we don't, if, if, if small grains are something you're trying to harvest and go to, go to head with and harvest that way, uh, you need to be very careful with the hard seed issue with the vetch. And they're, they're starting to focus on breeding vetches that maybe don't have as much hard seed and, and work on that because the vetch plant has, does a lot of great things. And if we can get around the hard seed, it would be easier to use it uh, more freely. Um, you know, as far as the annuals go, it's the one that survives winter best for us. And so it's something we've, we've used and, uh, you know, I, I hope it doesn't bite us too, too hard in the future. Uh, again, if, if you're green manuring, not so much of an issue because you're getting to it typically before you're producing seed. Um, mm -hmm. This next question is a long one. So bear with me. This is from, uh, it's like Timothy Kinrad. Um, says, um, Medium red clover, seal rye, and ryegrass and flax is exactly what I tried for my first attempt at winter cover this year in an experimental plot. Sown in late October. Great stand here in Southern Connecticut. No idea how to terminate this mix in the spring. I'm not willing to use herbicide and will till it in worst case scenario, but I'm looking to mow early to maximize photosynthetic surface area of vegetative growth all season. That's my first question. If I mow early spring, will my plan to drill green cover seeds, high diversity mix a few days before mowing work to outcompete the rye that's bound to grow back? Or do I have to till first and sow the mix in order to keep the rye and annual ryegrass from coming back and dominating the mix? Well, I think if the rye or ryegrass are vegetative, um, they are going to grow back vigorously after mowing, um, definitely. I mean, they respond very well to grazing, they grow back. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, drilling into it and then mowing, if you're doing it when the ryegrass or the rye is, is still young and vegetative is, is going to allow you to, you know, to, to get a sufficient jump on it with something with the next mix of cover crops. Um, 
I, you know, you could try something on a small scale where you try some, you use the word volatile practice, you know, risky practices are, are, you know, are worth trying just on a small scale. Um, I, I think till, tilling in the, the, the rye, rye grass and I, I'm not sure what else was, was going to overwinter. Maybe, maybe those would be the only two things that would overwinter. Um, but tilling those in and then planting um, whatever he wants to plant after that um, might, you know, might be the, what I would consider to be the, the primary practice and then yeah. try some other, other methods as small scale secondary practices. So I can relay a couple of experiences there. If if the rye, and this isn't rye grass, but if rye or wheat, if you allow it to go to head and then mow it, it will not die, but it will not regrow vigorously. Yeah. And we've had good success seeding alfalfa, say, into that. No-tilling alfalfa in that. It does a good job of suppressing weeds. And it's really not that competitive to where it interferes with the establishment of the young alfalfa so you know again the context is what stage of growth and one strategy might work work well when it's knee high but if you get rained out and all of a sudden the stuff's got a head on it before you can get out there then you know you may be able to try some different tricks um, and that kind of leads in a little bit to our next question here um, which is um, this is from jay nb uh can you graze cereal rye during boot stage then will the rye regrow to to seed to combine later mm. um i mean i think it can be done i i guess you know the question is are you going to get um the grain harvest that you want if you graze that late um you, you have more experience with grazing than I do, Dan. What, what's your thought on that? Well, um, I've never done that specific thing, so I have no personal experience. I know that out west, the common practice to graze <laughs> stalker cattle on wheat early in the spring. Yep. And so I would probably try to find someone in that part of the world that has more experience with that practice and say, okay, what are the rules of engagement here? You know, when do we need to get the cattle off here so as not to interfere with grain production? Um, you know, how much, uh, you know, my big concern in our part of the world isn't a big deal in Oklahoma or Kansas, but here I'd worry about pugging. If we, the odds are that if we put cattle out in a rye field early in the spring to graze and we get some wet weather, that's going to be very detrimental to yeah. the grain crop. So again, context here, and uh, I'm not sure it said where he's from. So um, it, it would depend a little bit on what kind of conditions you're going to be faced with at grazing time. And, and, and maybe it's as simple as you just have a plan that if you get an inch of rain, you get the cattle off there for a few days till things can firm back up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'd say your Western producers are more likely to have good data on that. Maybe some of the universities out in the plains would have more information on that than than a guy from Indiana and Illinois would. Um, this is a little different, changing gears a little bit here. Um, but uh, Joel Reddick asks, uh, where do you suggest looking for an organic market? 
We raise non-GMO corn, beans, and wheat, but don't have an organic market at hand. Um, and I guess, I uh, don't know where you're from, Joel. Um, uh, I would start that by saying that, you know, you've got some of the big guys getting involved in organics now. Um, Cargill is now making a market in this part of the world. I don't know if that's true throughout the Midwest. Uh, they've got big contracts to secure organic soybeans for large poultry businesses and so on and so forth. Um, consolidated grain and barge also yeah, is in business. Um, we're now selling to CGB. That's our local elevator. That's, I mean, it's just so nice. They're, they're about 15 miles away from us now. We, we were sending everything more than two hours away. And now we have a elevator that's about 15 miles so CGP has been good. We sell a lot of our stuff to a, a, an organic dairy. So maybe look in your area to see what uh, organic poultry, organic dairy operations are there and see if you can work with them. Um, it, it really is dependent on geography. I, I don't know if there's a one size fits all answer to that question. Yeah, I think the key thing is to get a, feel for the lay of the land by contacting the organic grain producers in his area. Uh, if this is the Joel Reddick that I know, uh, he's down in Tennessee, I believe, unless uh, I think that's right. Um, he, I, I feel really embarrassed here, but a guy named Joel Reddick spoke to one of my classes uh, early in the semester. And I think he was from Tennessee. Anyway, um, the, you know, the, the networking with organic producers or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing, networking with similar producers in your area is just so invaluable. And the, anybody who's producing organic grain on scale is, you know, is familiar with where they sell that grain and they, they can talk to you about their markets, selling directly to other, um, other producers that feed. Like we, we sell oats um, to an organic dairy. We've also sold them mixtures of oats and peas, and that's worked great. Um, but mostly we're going through grain merchants. And um, I guess one new opportunity would be Purdue. Purdue is, you know, is feeding chickens. Purdue with an E. Yes, right. Purdue with an E from the East Coast. Um, and I think they have a big presence in the, the southeast, they um, they're buying buying sunflowers. They're buying can organic canola. They're buying you know some things that previously we didn't have a good market for. Um, so I I think really you just have to find out what the marketplace is like in your area, and you don't want to be trucking too far, um, yeah. but trucking farther than you were you know accustomed to may, may work out economically just fine. We we were selling. You know, to buyers two hours away, and it was it was working fine. It just was logistically more challenging. Well, that, that's a good segue into my next question for you here, which is: besides corn and beans, what organic crash crops do you see the most potential for? Um, you know, getting off the beaten path. What are some things that you think we can use to get a little diversity, change our growing seasons and cycles a little bit with it? to help our overall system, but that do you see markets emerging for? Well, so we talked about cereal rye early on. I, I think cereal rye is a 
great opportunity, but the market needs to, to grow for that to be a large scale opportunity. It's nowhere you know, close to a corn, bean or wheat market right now. Um, but I, I think there will be the potential um, for more rye being fed as a ration. And so that could be high hybrid rye being fed in the future. Um, I think sunflowers are a great crop. And one of the, you know, one of the challenges in the past was a marketplace for them. But I think Purdue is, has really stepped up and is ready to buy a lot of sunflowers. Um, you have to be equipped to harvest the sunflowers. So just your standard harvesting equipment may, may not get the job done well. Um, we, we used a row crop head to harvest sunflowers and that, that worked well, but we, you know, we struggled to have a local combine that the row crop head would fit on and there were various problems. Um, but sunflowers can be planted late. They're highly competitive against weeds. They, they are, you know, they're an example of, you know, another thing that you can, you know, think of as maybe a lower value crop, but still something that will give you some revenue while also growing lots of biomass, getting good control of weeds, plant, you know, planting the sunflowers as late as um, mid-July mid has worked for us. Um, and so you can control a whole lot of weeds before you plant the sunflowers, or you can grow a whole lot of legume biomass in that spring before you plant the sunflowers. And some people are having success with growing the sunflowers for grain harvest with other, you know, in a mix of, you know, various uh, cover crops, legume cover crops, for example, something like cowpeas growing with the sunflowers or, or even more diverse mixes. Um, yeah, and I, I, I get very excited <laughs> when we start to talk about these things that, you know, when one plus one plus one no longer equals three, it equals five that I believe that the future lies in finding these crop mixes that are synergistic. For instance, the three sisters, you know, the native, you know, when they grew corn and squash and beans with it, and, and they all feed each other. And, uh, you know, we now have technology to separate these things out. If we can get them harvested and, and get them in a bin, we, we have ways to separate these out now. It's, it's not inexpensive, but it's doable. And uh, it gets really exciting when you can think about, you know, harvesting succotash maybe and, uh, and then be able to separate it out into in different, different bins. Uh, you know, have you, are you got any good examples uh, where you've seen people do that successfully? Well, we, we had mixed success, but um, some success growing oats with peas. And we did that for over five years. And we, we just had some really tough spring weather and poorly drained soils. And so that, that just makes it tough to grow something, a spring crop. So I don't think the problem was really the OP mix. Um, we, sometimes we got good yields of oats and peas, and then we sold it as a mix directly to a dairy farm. And they were not separating it. They, they used it as a mix. And mm. we just had to quantify what fraction of the mix was oat, what fraction was pea. And, um, they, they paid for the components and that, that worked well. The, what I think worked the best, what was most reliably effective in that system is we had a fantastic oat pea cover crop 
after harvesting the OPs and then doing some like tillage. And mm -hmm. I could very easily add in some other species as well, you know, throw in some sunflowers and, you know, some other things with the volunteer oats and peas. And that, that worked very well. But some, some years we got better yields than others. And that mainly came down to the spring weather. Um, I think, you know, in terms of other species that I'm really, you know, getting more and more excited about would be um, legumes that produce seeds for either sale as cover crop seed or grain other than soybeans. So cowpeas or the, the winter or spring peas, I think have, you know, have potential um, and you, you get volunteer legumes that, you know, are a great cover crop, um, but they don't, they don't persist in the soil like, like hairy vetch seed. Um, I, I think basically cowpeas are incredibly diverse. Their, their genetics are just that every type of, you know, shape and size of cowpea that you could imagine exists. Yet we only grow iron clay cowpea. I mean, as a cover crop, that's just the standard. And I, I think that that's going to change. I mean, I'm, I'm playing with some, some cowpeas right now that have seed that's about one third the size of iron, iron clay cowpea. So mm -hmm. you, you end up with um, about 10,000 seeds per pound rather than three to 4,000 seeds per pound. And so you can plant low seeding rates, have you know, lots of seed getting, you know, getting established. And then these, these little seeds, they turn into just as big a plant as a big seeded cowpea. Um, so you know, I'm always looking for cover crops that have little seeds. Whereas with, with grain, you're looking for grain that has big seeds. Whereas with cover crops, I'm looking for varieties that have as small a seed as possible. And I'd like to be able to grow cowpeas as not just a cover crop, but something where I harvest the seed for resale, either most likely for resale as a cover crop seed. Uh, but potentially a marketplace could develop um, where that cowpea was used for you know, feed or food. I, I, I don't know the options there, but I just know that there, cow, cowpeas can be bush, they can be vining, they can grow vines that are more than 20 feet long. They, they are very shade tolerant. They grow well with, you know, with lots of other things. Um, so I'm very excited about, you know, about just trying to capture more of the genetic potential of cowpeas. And I think there are some other uh, warm season legumes that also have potential. There's one called Lab Lab that I have worked with a little bit. And I'm finding, you know, I essentially, I was only aware of one type of lab lab that was available as a cover crop seed. Can you spell that? Lab lab is just L-A-B, L-A-B. Huh. And where's that so, from? I've never heard of it. Well, um, so if you've ever heard of purple hyacinth bean, it's grown just kind of as a ornamental. You see it growing on, you know, on fences and it has beautiful mm -hmm. purple flowers. Okay. Um, that's a type, that's a type of lab lab. Over in India, that's where lab labs have the most diversity. So I assume that's where the seed is originally, that's their center of origin. 
And they, they're they warm, have, warm season legume. It's a warm season legume. Um, they grow a lot of lab labs in Australia. And hmm. basically the, just, just like with iron clay cowpea, the lab labs that are available, generally available, they are not going to produce seed for you because they won't bloom until October. So you can't grow iron clay cowpea for seed harvest in the central Midwest, but you can down in Oklahoma. But there are types of cowpea that can be grown for seed all the way up into Wisconsin. There are types of lab lab that can be grown for seed, you know, up north as well. And so I think, you know, the, the more, the, you know, the shorter the maturity, the less biomass they produce. So there is a reason why these cover crop types are the ones that just keep growing vegetatively all the way to frost. Mm -hmm. But I think we could probably find some varieties that, um, you know, might start blooming in August and still be harvestable. Uh, so that's, that's something that I'm, I'm looking into. Um, I, you know, there are other cover crops that I'm looking at well, Better. and that was my yeah. next question is, you know, we talked about some cash crops that maybe show some promise. Talk about what are some of the cover crops that you think are underutilized in your opinion? We've, we all talk about rye and, and, and a lot of these things, but what are, what are the ones that you don't, you think should probably be used more than they are that more people need to be aware of and try to incorporate into their program? Well, you have to find your windows of opportunity. And so, you know, if you're planting after a small grain, or, you know, I've done some work with solar corridors where you're growing the cover crop in between rows of corn. Anytime you can grow the cover crop starting in the middle of the summer or, or earlier, you, you basically, you are wide open in terms of the possibilities. And so, um, you know, I, I think that various summer annual legumes like cowpea or lab lab have great potential if you can plant them early enough, sun hemp. Um, the seed cost has come down a lot. And so it also is a good one to plant in the middle of the summer. Um, there are a couple other really small seeded cover crops that most people have never heard of that I plant every year. Um, I plant chia, like hmm. a chia pet. Yeah. Very, very tiny seed, but have you ever planted a chia pet? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> I've seen it done, but I know chia is kind of a health food too. It, it may have potential to harvest and sell the grain if you've got a lot of duct well, tape for your combine. Well, you need the right variety. So the chia that you buy at the natural food store is a tropical chia. And okay. it, it will not bloom. It has beautiful blue flowers and you can grow it as a cover crop, but it will not bloom until October. Okay. Until your day length has gotten quite short. There is chia that was developed in Kentucky for the, uh, the horse feed market. And hmm. you can get a contract to grow it. I don't think, I don't think there's really a, a market for growing it unless you're under contract. Uh, right. But it, I think there are some options for doing that. And it, it is a tremendously um, vigorous plant that, you know, it starts with this tiny seed, you know, as small as like a pigweed seed. And then it grows into this plant that's, you know, just as tall as a, as a water hemp plant, you know, great big plant that has beautiful blue flowers and attracts lots of insects. Uh, so I think chia has potential. Another one, the seed is not as small, but it's pretty small that I plant most years is sesame. 
Sesame has a, Sesame. Yeah, it has a very vigorous root system. It's very mm. tolerant of heat and drought. And it has beautiful flowers that, that attract lots of insects. So I assume it winter kills. <laughs> yeah, it winter kills and it doesn't produce the, the varieties that I've grown, they they bloom for an extended period, but they never produce viable seed. I've never mm. had a volunteer. Um, so yeah, it's you know, it's it's kind of you know, one of those cover crops that you don't have to worry about it becoming a weed because it, it well, just never makes viable seed. Let's back up there. You, you talked a little, you mentioned solar corridors. I'd like to explore that a little more because there's always more than one way to skin the cat. When we need diversity and biomass and all these things, I mean, <laughs> uh, maybe there are opportunities to grow along with our cash crop if we can uh, identify how to do that and 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 make it synergistic. Uh, what's your experience in terms of how are you going about it, and what kind of difference are you seeing in your corn crop, and uh, versus maybe next year's soybean crop? You know, maybe we hurt our corn a little bit, but maybe that sets the stage for a really excellent corn bean crop the next year. Talk just about what what you, we're working, what you've seen there, and, and okay. how you think it's best employed. So I've been working on this for about five years and I've had successes and failures. Right now I'm feeling a bit uh, kind of down on solar corridors because the system that I, that I tried for the longest was actually the least successful system. And I was trying it the longest just because I really wanted to give it a chance. And that was where I was doing 60 inch corn alternating with mostly legumes in between and I was moving back and forth 30 inches. So I was trying to plant my corn each year over where I'd had legume row before. And, you know, with GPS, I was successfully getting, I think, you know, the right placement. But essentially, I was doing continuous corn and I wasn't doing it completely no-till. I was getting a lot of corn stock residue in where I was planting my next corn crop. And um, essentially, I just, you know, I, I was seeing the corn growing poorly relative to all my other corn year after year because I was when, trying to grow continuous corn. And when were you seeding it? When, when were you seeding your solar corridor? <laughs> okay. Well, and how? Yeah. So that's a great question. Many people have tried to do this where they plant the corn first. And then they wait until maybe V4, V5, and they come back and they plant with some type of specialized tool, like a modified drill. Mm -hmm. We have done that, but our system is much simpler. We just plant the, the corridor and the corn in the same pass by just using either alternating boxes or sometimes we've tried other combinations where we might have two rows of corn, and then one row of cover crop or three rows of corn. We tried a variety of things. Um, the, the systems that have performed the best were where we had more rows of corn, a fewer rows of cover crop, where we were not packing the corn plants as tight together. So, you know, for example, if we, if we do two rows of corn and one row of legumes, we can maintain the full population by setting the planter for 45,000. 
two rows at 45,000 is equivalent to three mm -hmm. rows at 30,000. Mm -hmm. And so that we, we grew 180, 190 bushel corn that was about 10, 10% lower than where we had the straight 30 inch corn. Um, and we, so, yeah, I mean, I, I felt pretty good about that. Um, what about wheat I, pressure? You can't cultivate now, right? You, you're taking cultivation and blind cultivation out of the no, window. Do, do these actually, growing plants help keep the weeds away? Well, so actually the way we do it, we can use all of our standard mechanical cultivation practices because we're oh, not, right. because we're planting on 30 inch rows. And so we, we just have, you know, corn on one or two 30 inch rows. And then the next 30 inch row is that mix of legumes that uh, we plant with, with the bean, the bean disc. And gotcha. so we, we run our rotary hoe, we run our standard row cultivation. And I mean, the, the ability to control weeds in the corn is, is superior to our standard 30 inch corn because we're, we're building a wall of corn. We're putting corn plants that are like four and a half inches apart. Sometimes right. if we're doing 60 inch corn, the corn might be three inches apart. Yeah. And what, what we found is you need to index fertility right to the row. When you're packing that high population, you need to feed those corn plants well. And with our organic products, um, we just haven't done that very well. I mean, I, I just have always felt like the corn was not adequately fed. We also, you know, we're not planting the corn as early as I would like to. I think for solar corridors to work best, you need to plant early so you get the most sunlight. You also need to think about row orientation. And the, the little field where I did four years in a row of moving back and forth 30 inches, that, that was a east-west orientation. And I don't think that's ideal. I think a north-south orientation gives you more solar, you know, more light moving down the roads. Um, so how important was the genetic you used? You know, like you know, I, I think that's pretty important. To certain genetics are going to lend themselves; others are not going to like this at all. What 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 have you found? Yes, that that's absolutely right. And I I can't tell you that I, you know, this is one of those things where I I wish I was collaborating with a seed company and we were putting out, you know, a dozen different hybrids, you know, even though I've done this for five years, I've only used a couple of different hybrids and, you know, I haven't, you know, in one year, I've only compared two hybrids rather than comparing a dozen hybrids. So um, certainly there are hybrids that are going to be more responsive and other hybrids that just suffer greatly from being packed so tight. And, I think generally we're looking for high flex, but I don't think that concept perfectly defines what what you know the right fit is. Um, and yeah, we essentially just need seed companies like um, Prairie Hybrids is a corn seed company in mm -hmm. Northern Illinois, and they they have put out some trials looking at. Believe it or not, not not just 60 inch, but they they grow everything on I think 38 inch rows, and so they were looking at 76 inch corn. Ooh, wow. they, I saw one set of data where they had one hybrid 
that produced 200 bushel corn on 76 inch rows. Wow. I was amazed. And um, I, I tried, you know, I planted that hybrid, but under, you know, under my system where I was essentially doing continuous corn, it didn't do very well. You know, it, it needs to be well fed. I think. So I, I think there's lots of potential in the solar corridor system. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of it as essentially you're fallowing a portion of your field every year. And sure. so, you know, with a normal fallow system, you're not getting any revenue, but, or, or very little revenue. So, you know, why, why should I be disappointed if I'm losing 10% of my corn yield, if I'm really effectively doing fallow and strips across my field where that fallow might be feeding livestock, or it might be setting me up for better, you know, a better crop the next season. We, we have well, tried following with oats and following with soybeans. We didn't see a benefit to following with soybeans, but we did see a better oat crop following the solar corridor system. All right, well, we're getting uh, 90 minutes in here, so we need to get close to the end, but I wanna hit you with just a few quick hitters here, okay? Okay, gotcha. Uh, what, what's the most common mistake made by organic farmers, particularly newbies like myself? Oh, we, I think we, we already talked about top three. One, top three. One, one thing is just being, you know, having the wrong balance between principles and practices. We, we've got to have the fundamentals right for the practices where we get a good stand and it's well fed and we control the in row weeds and especially the early growth of weeds. Those types of things just, you know, if you're, if you're so focused on, you know, never tilling or some, some, some principle, soil health principle is interfering with having the right balance of practices, then you're gonna have big problems. Um, I, I think the, you know, the, the management of cover crops is really something that, that can work well or it can bite you terribly. If you don't manage the cover crops well, the cover crops just create, you know, a, a, a mess in your field where you have a lack of nitrogen, where you have, you know, residues that interfere rather than support your practices. Um, what else would be, you know, the, I think, you know, one of the key fundamentals that I always emphasize in everything, not just farming, but you need to start right. You need to start out right. And so getting your, get, getting a good stand established, having early weed control, whether that be through blind cultivation or if you're doing row cultivation, your very first pass is what controls in row weeds so much more than anything subsequent. So making sure that you do the, the first things really well getting yourself off to a good start is really important. I guess one other thing, and you you probably have addressed drainage issues pretty well on your on your land. We we have not at my research farm, and I know there are plenty of organic farmers that struggle with, you know, fields that need tile or need some type of drainage improvement. And I mean, if you can't do timely field operations or you have big wet holes, um, it interferes with everything you're trying to do organically. So improving right. drainage should be a very high priority. When, when you think of the best 
the most successful organic farms that you've been on and seen how they do, what do they have in common? This may repeat a little bit of what you just said. Yeah, right. There's some certainly some overlap. I think most most guys they're doing a tillage based system. They are using blind cultivation really effectively, so that they get early weed control, so that when they are using their row cultivation, they they're not trying to do it all with row cultivation. Their yeah. blind cultivation has tackled those early weeds as effectively as it can. Um, yeah, and, and I, 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 I'm, I, I'm, see, I'm coming to see the light there. And what I like about it is it's cheap, it's fast, and it's very minimally, very minimal disturbance from line cultivation, very minimal. Yeah, I mean, you, so historically, a lot of line cultivation tools could not handle residues well. Like a time weeder just rakes residues. So we need to innovate. And there are high residue rotary hose out there. They're fairly easy to get. We have one. And I mean, I use a rotary hoe um, to do more than blind cultivation. I use it to incorporate cover crop seeds to help distribute residues. Um, I, I can run through basically any amount of residue with our high residue rotary hoe. And um, I, I need to update that rotary hoe. The spoons have been sharpened. Now they don't get the right action. So you know, I'm right here in the backyard of Getter. So I need to get a new set of spoon wheels. I need to maybe put on helper springs so I have better down pressure so that the tool really can do its job right. So uh, you, you mentioned down pressure springs and you know, and trying to get these things, we struggled a little bit this last year. It was our first year to really use a rotary hoe a lot and to get it to go through heavy residue that had been mulched, but still. A, and one thing we found is speed's very important. It actually works better at 10 mile an hour and up. We could go through things that would plug up at eight mile an hour. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. so another trick I've heard that I wanted to get your input on is flipping the wheels backwards you know, turn them the opposite direction they normally run. Have you ever seen me do that? Does it help with residue flow if you're struggling with that? And does it do as effective a job of getting rid of the weeds? Is the point in doing it if, it, if it's not going to get rid of the weeds? Have you got any input on that? Um, I, I have heard of that. I have not tried it. Um, that, you know, there, there are uh, people who do that. I know there's a guy up in Minnesota who, uh, told me about using that approach. Um, I, our experience is that you can get a lot of residue to flow through a rotary hoe if you, you know, have a, a rotary hoe designed for high residues and you're operating it at the right speed. Uh, we, we're normally going over 10 miles an hour with the rotary hoe. Okay. Um, and okay. so you just, you know, th there is a speed that's too fast where it starts skipping, but um, typically, you know, like 10 to 13 miles an hour is what we're running with the rotary hoe. And, um, it, you know, it, it's all about, I mean, I think what, what good farmers do is they observe whether they're getting the job done. And so they check the seed, whether it's being planted, placed the way they want it. They check everything over and over again, monitoring and then adjusting when it's not working right. And that, 
that's really the you know the common the commonality uh, across everybody who's really good they just check 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 and then adjust so you're saying some of these younger farmers that like their technology um need to lay off the YouTube and social media while they're out operating equipment, pay attention to what's actually going on if they expect to be successful. Probably. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, I, I appreciate watching some of their videos, but um, I mean, basically the, the opportunity that auto steer gives you is not just to be able to, you know, film in the cab it's also giving you the opportunity to look backwards and really watch yes. what you're doing and nudge side to side and um we you know what what we want technology to do is just allow us to do things better to, to do what we're trying to do with a little more efficiency without it being so you know so mind-numbing sometimes or requiring so much concentration and if we if we're able to watch the critical processes, partly from the cab, but also getting out of the cab and getting out, you know, there's nothing more important than making sure that the seed is placed right and the slot is closing properly and all that. We um, we have a technical term for that on the farm. We call that AOS adjustments. They require you to get your ass out of the seat. Yeah. And well, there's no substitute for that. That that is true, and you know, it, that, I think there's no substitute for having the seasoned farmer and other, you know, the the kids or the 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 hired hand or the visitors need to be part of that process. You know, they need yeah. to see what you know what the veteran farmer thinks is the most important thing to check. They need to go. They need to be right there checking it, and it's it's a great. It's a great opportunity for bonding and learning what, what to prioritize. Yeah. All right, Joel, final thoughts. What have we not talked about? What would you like to leave the audience with uh, uh, that, that uh, is, a, is, a, is a big idea that you think people need to be thinking about going forward? Oh, I, I guess, you know, you, we just need to look for the people who are doing a great job at whether it be organic farming or, you know, other things that we're interested in and try, you know, you were just asking me what, what's the common ground for the people that are really good. Um, you know, there, there, there's just no amount of observing people who are really good that, um, is ever enough. You, you just, just like you like to listen to a great musician, you want to watch farmers that are really good at what they do. And we need to think about, you know, how to go beyond um, field days or conference presentations to having even more immersion experiences so that the, those of us um, who, you know, aren't aren't the artists can learn from the artists. You know, someone like Gary McDonald is a, a guy in, in central Illinois who, you know, he uses yeah, equipment. He's fantastic at what he does. And you don't necessarily want to try and mimic what he's doing, but the level of artistry that he brings to what he does is just very, much. very impressive and inspiring. You know, you can directly learn things as well. Um, there's a organic farmer in Iowa who built 
a new type of cultivator called the Acura Flow that hmm. we have been using for a couple of years now. And he heard Gary McDonald give a presentation and he basically wasn't satisfied that you had to use really old steel, just Frankenstein together. He said, I'm going to build a new stainless steel cultivator that you know has all the bells and whistles, but still can do what Gary McDonald was doing with the old, old cultivators. And so it's been great working with that guy. Um, he comes to the farm and he, he doesn't want to just unload the cultivator. He wants to walk the field with us as we start using it. And it's mm -hmm. been a, it's been a great experience. Well, I think uh, Paul Thomas just chimed in on the chat here. And uh, he says, Western Illinois University has a great professor. And uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, I wish that I had met you sooner so I maybe could have routed some of my progeny over your way and spent a few years over there. I think it would have been good for him. But uh, anyway, thank you so much, Joel, for all you do to your outreach, your work on the university farm and how you go out of your way to share it with all of us. Um, can't say thanks enough for that. And you've helped us a lot. I know you've helped a lot of people out here. So thanks for taking the time to be here and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. This, this has been fun. I, I was feeling kind of low energy at the start and I'm, I'm fired up now. I might even be able to do a little grading and prepare for uh, lectures, two lectures tomorrow, the last day of classes. So thank, well, thank you thank for inviting you. me. This has been fun. Well, thanks for taking time. Really appreciate it. Have a great uh, Christmas and uh, we'll see you on the road soon this winter, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you. Take care.